Okay. So what do you call yourself? Eh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Yeah, just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like uh, Humphrey Bogart. They scared me. They, they teach me to talk. I like those guys. I always know one day I'm coming here, United States. not a small-time punk anymore. Supreme Court says that your privacy can be invaded. You shoot the house this month? You're spending a lot of money on this counter surveillance. We're doing 10 million, 15 million a month. Come on. Now, that's serious money, you know? Your bank boys got to come down a bit. Who else can you trust? That's why you pay us what you do. You trust us. You're in good hands with us. Pacino is Scarface. He loved the American dream with a vengeance. Al Pacino, Scarface. theater and the usher nods me in they know me here i descend down the staircase behind the movie screen that only select people know about the door at the bottom opens and i walk in the sound of movie spoilers fill the air barkeep has my drink ready and motions me to the back the rest of the crew are here already this is my type of place and these are my type of people. Join me as we discuss the inner secrets of cinema. Have a seat in the spoiler room. 
and we are live. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you for once again tuning into the spoiler room as we get through our scarred faces month here in the spoiler room. We have some, uh, uh, we've been covering some great movies, uh, two so far. We covered uh, Mr. Scarface, and last week we covered the 1932 Scarface, uh, the original. And so today we are looking at the 83 remake 40 years ago last year. Holy crap. Can you believe that already? 40 years ago. And no, yeah, I, I can't either. And so we are looking at uh, Scarface from 1983 with Mr. Al Pacino. And I've got a lovely crew with me tonight to talk about this film. So thank you for venturing down the stairs, pulling up a chair and popping your favorite drink with us as we talk movie spoilers with me tonight i have a wonderful crew as i mentioned first off he's from the establishing shot.org it is none other than mr jeff york hello jeff how are you good thanks how are you guys good awesome. good thank, thank you for taking, thank you for taking a break from awards voting to uh talk about this classic film yeah. so i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> and Cheers. with and with us as well, fresh out of the shower and keeps coming back for more. It's none other than <laughs> one and only Mr. Ian Simmons. How you doing, Ian? We're giving away industry secrets now. We are. Uh, we are giving no. industry. Um, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm I'm spiffy and ready to go. That's how we get the extra viewers. We talk about Ian in a shower. See, we're not showing it, but we're just talking about it. So you know, people read the uh, transcripts. They're like, wait, what? And then they'll tune in and they're like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I think they'll be very pleased to see such a handsome man in the right corner of their screen. Exactly. Aww. Yeah, he is in the right corner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm touched, guys. Uh, what, but not not in the shower sense. Not in what? the shower sense. <laughs> <laughs> who isn't touched but on a rampage is the main character who is also the title character of our film tonight, which is Scarface 1983 from Mr. Director uh, himself, Brian De Palma, again here in the spoiler room. We just keep coming back to De Palma. I don't know how that keeps happening, but we just we just seem to keep talking about it. <laughs> you know, Mark, not to uh, derail you already, but I oh, wanted to say because uh, they just had again. We were talking about award shows before we went live tonight, and they're cramming a lot into a couple weeks. And uh, mm -hmm. about I think last weekend uh, they just gave out the. Um, well, maybe it was this week. I forget. But they had the Governor's Awards, the special oh, Oscars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, it makes me always wonder, like, who they haven't given it to that they could. I mean, uh, this year, one of the honorees was Mel Brooks, and he's won an Oscar in competition. So it's not really like he needed one. And arguably, I'm not sure how many great, great films he's done in, in his oeuvre. But um, I was talking to a friend about that, and we were discussing the fact that, you know, really, Brian De Palma's had quite a few, and I just don't think they're ever going to get around because he's, you know, kind of a renegade and, and sort of the the John Carpenters and some of those kind of people who they won't, I mean, they barely honor horror anyway. Um, I mean, Tony Collette couldn't get a Best Actress nomination for Hereditary. They're still not kind of coming around on most of this, but... Um, Anyway, it's another, like, wow, yeah, for all of the very De Palma, De Palma films we talked about last time, this one is very much a De Palma film, but also, you know, a, not entirely a, a typical De Palma film, but still, I, mm -hmm. I think it it was a big hit, and it was, it's only, I think, kind of gained in reputation over the decades, and uh, the more you watch it, the more you go, wow, he was 
this was kind of at the zenith of his powers in some respects and maybe some <laughs> of his faults too, but uh, nonetheless. Well, I think, I mean, partially, um, I don't, we're just kind of diving right into it, but just dive right into it, I think yeah. partially it, it's, it does feel like the Palma film, but it also feels like an Oliver Stone film because Oliver much, Stone yeah. wrote the movie and it's almost like this perfect, you know, match. You've got De Palma's style and then Stone's like obsession with kind of American, I was going to say Americana, but like the dark side of Americana and, you know, conspiracy mm -hmm. and, and, and money and crime. Um, yep. It just, it works so well together. Uh, it's funny. And they both and have we, a taste for the lurid. Yes. Mm, yes. Of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because we were talking about the 32 Scarface, which I watched for the first time for last week's show. And I was just amazed by the parallels between both movies. I knew that this was a remake of the 32 version, but I didn't know how beat for beat, like story wise, just about mm -hmm. um, it was. And Mark, we're kind of discussing, I think, in our Facebook chat with uh, with Joe Randazzo, who couldn't be with us tonight. Um, you guys got the deluxe like uh, cocaine briefcase uh, cigar okay. face set. Right? <laughs> this is this is an amazing. Uh, unfortunately, my audio only viewers will not be able to see it. But yes, a number of years ago, I got this Al Pacino anniversary Scarface box set. I think it was like the twentieth anniversary or something. Wow. And anyway, so check this thing out, though. Uh, let's see if I can do this. So you open it up. And uh, there is uh, inside the box is uh, a montage, you know, a collage of pictures from the movie. And I haven't opened them yet, even, but it comes with like eight lobby cards. Oh, here. Back when they had lobby cards. Back when they mm -hmm. had lobby cards. And inside, of course, is this is how old this is. This is the DVD of Scarface. And when I first got this, I'm like, okay. But uh, the insert, which I kept as well because I'm like that, I kept the insert. It says that there's a money clip and the original in here. Where is that? Well, secretly to hide from the IRS, oh. it has a removable <laughs> piece. And there's Scarface. And there is the money clip with Tony Montana's signature emblem on it as well. So, yeah. What happened to the uh, Omar action figure on the helicopter? Was <laughs> they, they, they don't have that in that set? Jeez. No, it's not in it. And I think Funko Pop couldn't get the right. Oh, maybe that. that's what they're waiting for the Funko Pop. Oh my right. gosh, I can, I can just see that. Um, but no, it's funny because I pulled out that uh, this is a Blu-ray steelbook that I had. Sure. I bought it years ago, and I discovered a little surprise because I watched the original Scarface I think on YouTube last week. Yeah. Um, I actually have the the DVD of that. It's in this case, hidden <laughs> hidden behind the Blu-ray. Wow! Oh, I just I never go. I always thought it was like the DVD copy of the '83 yeah. film, but no, it's I pulled out the the Blu-ray of '83, and behind it was like the old-fashioned Scarface logo. I'm like, oh, that's great! I actually own it because I was thinking after watching it last week, I have to own this movie. Turns out I already did. Well, there you it go. is funny how those copyright laws let those movies now become available on YouTube. Well, they, well the, lapsing not, of, the lapsing of them. Eh, they're not exactly. Uh, don't get me started on YouTube copyright. That's a whole show, and you'll hear me rant. The seventeen-year-old oh, okay, veteran sorry. of YouTube, and <laughs> and how people get away with showing full movies, yet I get dinged for showing one poster from a freaking uh, 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 Liam Neeson movie that uh, he was on a train. 
and he was an action guy and I showed the poster and they literally blocked my video from 250 countries for showing one still from the movie. So don't get me started on that. Maybe they were trying to protect those countries from that film though, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) They could have, they could have been protecting it, but luckily no one's protected tonight from Scarface. What do you mean the dining car is closed? (laughs) (laughs) And yes, we talked about the original one last week and it's been a little while since I watched this one. And you're right, Ian, watching, watching the 83 Scarface while, while it's, it's dressed differently the sets are dressed differently if you look at the situations that we get in here they are beat for beat from the original they're just in they're they're just uh uh mashed up in the de palma way uh you know aesthetic but it's still the same pretty much beats in this and that was what blew me away is because i thought this was quite a bit different than the original of where when i first watched it but now watching it again back to back i'm like Oh shit, no. I mean, we've got, you know, down to the assassination attempt scene, which, you know, after watching the original 30s one where he's on his own, he goes, drops off his sister, you know, because he's all upset. And then they take a pot shot at him. And then you watch this one. And yes, folks, we're going to jump around because this movie's like, what, uh, 40 years old. Uh, and in this one, you get the scene where he sees his sister with some jabroni on the floor, takes her into the bathroom. He goes in there and just like, hey, man, don't don't touch my sister. And then, you know, kicks him out, man. And then he gets his buddy to take her home. And then I'm like, oh, I know this scene. And then he's sitting there by himself. And I'm like, oh, I know this scene, too. And then I'm just sitting there going, it's all clicking into place. It's like, wow, this really is far closer to a remake than i thought it was yeah and even to the point where they have the uh the world is yours mm-hmm. um you know in the original i think it was um it was some kind of a it was a on a sign that, it was a yeah, sign. yeah for the billboard yeah. and this one it's on a it's on a blimp that he sees sort of at dawn it's like yeah. the world is yours and then it's pan-american I mean, there's just so much meaning wrapped up to it i the more i watch this film and i've seen it a, a few times over the years it changes meaning for me and also grows in estimation. I know it's kind of this pop cultural throwaway. I mean, it was big among like, like the hip hop and kind of gangster rap community back in like the nineties, particularly because of the iconography of Tony Montana with that big gun and you want to play rough. Um, And I know it was sampled in a bunch of like rap songs and stuff, but it's a, it's a great, I think drama and the performances are top notch. And when I see Pacino's commitment, I went back and I rewatched the that closing 10 minutes of the assault on his compound. Man, just he's he's amazing from waking up in a from a coke fueled stupor, crying over his you know sister who he lost because he's sad about his sister and the fact that he didn't get to frankly sleep with his sister while she was alive uh, to just like blowing everybody away. It's it's yeah, this is I'll say it's a masterpiece. And and you know what? It's also I, I dare say I think the kind of masterpiece that um, we don't give enough talk to in the world of film, and that is uh, the movies that are sometimes pulpy, sometimes a little trashy, sometimes a little bit vulgar. Uh, you know, people like Pauline Kael used to champion those kind of films, and she was a big, famous critic for doing so. And 
you, you know, you think about movies that at the time, like this one was not very well received as were some of the other movies in the early eighties, which is kind of shocking when you think of like the thing wasn't well received mm -hmm. and this wasn't well received. And then even as you go through the eighties, movies like Die Hard were, were, were hits and, and struck a chord with audiences. But you look at that movie now, it's like it's the most influential movie in the last 20, 30 years. And uh, it's so well done. And I've always argued that the greatest Bond villain since maybe Aura Goldfinger was actually Hans Gruber. He just wasn't in a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's funny how, I guess sometimes whether, you know, it's the test of time or changing thoughts about things. But, you know, you look at this film now and you realize there is a lot of artistry in theirs. There's incredible tension. There's some very strong performances. There's some big shocks that really are weighty scenes in the movie. I mean, I'll just, since we're bouncing around a little bit, if you don't mind me saying, yeah, go ahead. I still to this day think one of the hardest scenes to sit through and watch, and yet it's so spectacularly done, is when um, Tony, uh, the Al Pacino character, and Manny, his right hand, Steve, Stephen Bauer, uh, visit Frank at like three in the morning after mm -hmm. the failed attempt at him. And he turns, you know, Robert Loggia as Frank into a crying on his knees baby, you know, begging for his life. And then even worse in some respects after that is Harris Eulen as the cop who's on the take and basically is telling Tony that he's going to take a cut of his stuff. And he's sitting there quiet and arrogant and saying like i told him i told him not to do it. i told him this and then he gets shot in the stomach and it takes him a couple minutes to get the second shot and die and and he's like wait a minute wait a minute i can fix this and it's like i just i still find that shocking i remember when i saw that i think it was in college when this movie came out yeah uh thinking god damn that is I, I mean, I was kind of shook by that. And I've watched it like you, Ian, probably every couple of years. I mean, I didn't have to watch it before this show, Mark, because mm -hmm. I know it so well. That I thought this one I can talk probably 10 years ago. I saw it in or whatever it was. I, I still remember who all, but that still is a shocking scene. And, you know, it's been decades for me too since then, but uh, it, it stands up. And I think in some respects, the stuff that it does really well, it does really, really well. I mean, even that, you know, the very De Palma scene where, you know, Stephen Bauer is chatting with the girl on the street while they're waiting for Tony to do the deal. And the camera just goes up the stairs to the window and then down. And yeah. here's, you know, Tony Montana watching his partner's arm cut off with a buzzsaw. It's like, I mean, that's just excruciating, but it's really well done. It's, it's artistic. Uh, it's artistic violence. Like there's, maybe the best kind of version of that. I got to ask though, because this is something I, when I picked up the last time I watched it and I don't know if it's a flub or if I just missed a detail, but when Tony and that guy go to the, the hotel to make that deal right. and they end up getting ambushed and his friend gets handcuffed to the shower rail and they just take him apart with a chainsaw. They bring Tony in there next and I didn't see any body or any body parts or not nearly enough blood. Like what, where did that corpse go? <laughs> I'll bet you dollars to donuts he had to cut that shit to get an hour. Oh, there is. Uh, yeah. Because I know that they had to cut a number of scenes in all of the De Palma films that, to, See, to get the hour. So my guess is they probably showed some greater carnage, but they they couldn't get away with that further. No, it's, it's not even it's not even that. It's like literally when they put him up in that in that bathroom in that there should shower be more stall, blood everywhere. It should have looked like the like Leatherface's slaughter slaughterhouse. <laughs> but it, was it should so... have looked like that elevator from The Shining. You're not going to get yes. that clean. Yes. 
you just aren't going to get that clean. Guys. Are you talking about after after they chop his buddy up and they start yeah. trying to handcuff him? I mean, imagine the yeah. Oh, after loss. they after they try to okay, yeah, because uh, there yeah. is plenty of blood. But you're right. After they cut him up and they're going to start cutting up Tony, you're right. There isn't another. Well, body it should have been all over everybody. It should have been. I mean, all they over should have just been drenched in well, blood. It's kind of interesting. I was watching this going, <laughs> did Al Pacino have it so that he doesn't get, like in his contract, Probably. he doesn't get splattered with blood? Because while his buddy's getting chopped up, you watch him. There's a, the shower curtain. Yeah. His face, they're pushing his face so he sees it. But the shower curtain conveniently covers Al Pacino's face just as the blood is spurting all over. It, it just happens to cover his face. And I'm like, Okay, that's just a little too convenient. <laughs> Speaking of Al Pacino, uh, his power as an actor and everything else, maybe you know his ability as a star to get that kind of coverage or uncoverage, if you will, in the contract. Um, it's hard to believe that that was made uh, just uh, like a decade after The Godfather. Mm -hmm. I mean, he looks pretty young in it, and you're thinking like, you know, he's so quiet and so kind of still as Michael. And, you know, here is kind of one of his first big kind of out there performances. I mean, you could argue that he sort of did that with uh, Injustice for All, but it's really only the last scene where he kind of loses his shit. But in this movie, I mean, from the get-go, you know, he's got the accent, and it's, oh, it's almost comical when you first Amen. come Amen. back to it. It's like, wow, I wonder if he would have gone that broad today if he was doing it, but I, I don't know if anybody would have, probably on all kinds of levels. Well, I mean, that's, the, and I, I talked about this last year just as a as kind of a question, is you know, it's very easy to look back on a movie 40 years on and say, oh, because and, and pieces have been written about this. People sure. commented, oh, it's it's a racist performance. How can you have I mean, essentially, most of this movie features Italians playing, you know, Cubans or yeah. other versions of Hispanic. Right. right? right. Um, but, you know, it's 1983. You got like the one of the biggest stars in the world playing this movie like he is an actor so it's kind of his job to take on parts sure. that aren't necessarily him so is it you, you called it broad and i understand that but i don't know if it's broad because they, yeah. i certainly i certainly have met people of all different mm -hmm. kind of nationalities who mm -hmm. when you talk to them they talk it's it's kind of like hard to find that line between what is caricature <laughs> no pun intended jeff right. uh versus something that is sort of an accurate or accurate ish reflection of people you might meet on the street because the sad reality is there are some people who talk like stereotypes right know? well it's funny too because so, in the 80s when certain people were playing gangsters they did a lot of stuff with their mouth or their chin i mean even like jack nicholson and prince's honor you know he kind of has that face <laughs> and leo did it in killers of the uh, the um, flower moon, flower moon, just recently, kind of the Billy Bob Thornton thing. But I, I think <laughs> for me, the it's 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 not as much with the accent, but I think the fact that really the expression that Pacino has on his face almost the entire movie is this. Yeah, well, you know, but and I that's think, a little broad to hold that face <laughs> the entire time. But uh, I, but it, 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 it he pushes it, but it's also. He's realizing that this is pulp, and you have to push it a little bit, I think, for the pulp. The thing I liked about that expression and his whole kind of demeanor is you realize just how short he is. And I think it might be one of the few Pacino performances I can really think of that plays up the fact that he's, you know, not mm -hmm. a very tall leading right, man, which right. plays into 
his sort of complex of like, yes, he's a he's a Cuban immigrant. He is a criminal. He wants to rise to the top. He wants the respect. He wants to be the big man, even though he's right. not. So he's got almost like this Napoleon complex. So yeah. that that constant scowl, that constant attitude, um, the constant showing off. Yep. It's it's a great contrast compared to the people that he meets in the movie who are bigger than him and ultimately end up signing his death contract. They're like the the suave kind of laid yes. back, you know, That's old right. school guys. Even uh, was it? Oh my gosh, Sosa! Sosa! Oh my gosh, Paul Shanier! What a great voice, and he's this elegant sort of erudite. Tony, I like you. There's no bullshit. There's no you. lying in you. No, yes, no lying in you. Does. That's right. He's like a villain from Magnum PI for crying out loud. <laughs> or Miami Vice. Or Miami Vice. He's like. <laughs> like this. But so even true. between him and Robert Loggia as as Frank. <laughs> Still sounds so stupid. Robert Loggia as Frank Lopez. <laughs> but, you know, there are these constant examples of everything that Tony Montana wants, but he thinks that he has to act a certain way to get where he yeah. really doesn't. It's, well, it's, and, it's and that's a great point, Ian, because I suppose he enters the room with that chip on his shoulder and he has to already put up the kind of fuck you face because he's he's a foreigner. He's small. He's... Uh, you know, done some time and probably been pushed around all of us, even his mother's bitching at him the whole time. So, you know, he has to grab the power when he can. And part of it is, you know, that face. See, and, yeah. and I'm, I, in all honesty, point. I think it plays into, you know, everybody's, you talk about his accent and people talk about his racist performance and that, but if you look at it, it's almost as if Tony's even playing up his own accent to be the tougher guy because if you look at how his buddy manny right talks yeah, his manny pretty... his man, hmm. buddy manny talks a bit too but he doesn't talk dang, you know it feels like tony is purposely playing up his cuban accent and his cubic cuban descent and his origins mm -hmm. in that and how tough he he's he's almost he's playing it up far more than what maybe he naturally is whereas manny you look at manny he's not nearly as much of a character as tony montana is no i mean manny is the kind of guy that you could naturally see working for sosa and maybe mm -hmm. even becoming his number two right um but i think he you know tony recognizes i mean not only the fact that they're friends but i think he needs that balance to kind of keep them you know uh in line because you know manny access his voice of conscience somewhat and and even the kind of like oh, pull back you know just 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 calm down a little bit um yeah, Stephen Bauer gives a great, great, great performance in this. The only performance that I think is kind of questionable in this movie and might lean into that. Well, you probably shouldn't have gone with that accent. Is as much I love her, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. She was like, I think, nineteen when she did this movie, or some ridiculous thing. So mm -hmm. I'm a little more forgiving, but uh, yeah. Well, yeah. it's funny too because all of the people who we just are talking about it being for whatever the word is broad or caricature or whatever. Um, they very rarely gave a performance that was like that before. I mean, they're not bad actors. Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonio is a very good actor and often a very subtle actress. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, her performance in the color of money not only got her an Oscar nomination for supporting actress, but she is a stone cold, you know, mm -hmm. like 
I will only act sort of from A to F in this. And she's great in that, a very controlled performance. And, you know, Pacino turned around for De Palma a few years later and did Carlito's Way, which I think is one of his most underrated performances. He's fantastic in that. He's totally believable and he's still doing an accent there. But so I think you're right. I think that there was a there there's it's in the way in the script is written. It's a, who this character is and why he's doing what he is. And maybe with her, maybe she was trying to match the energy. But I will say this, too. And, and this is where the Oliver Stone thing, I think, comes through a little bit more than De, De Palma's. De Palma is an energetic filmmaker and he get ener he can get energetic performances from uh, his his actors but Oliver Stone for sure does you know he yeah. pushes them to push and you can just imagine those two working together <laughs> i mean i suppose master antonio came away from this thinking shit i got to i got to go big these are all big scenes and every scene i'm in is like I'm screwing in the ladies' room or, you know, showing up at the doorway with my boobs hanging out or, you know, wanting to finally get it on with my brother in a coke-induced frenzy or, you know, it's like, where's my small scene that I'm supposed to be believable? Oh, that's right. I'm I'm just this large-ass character, so I have to play it that big. But, but that's, I, a, that's I will a good say point. There is a detail in her performance in her last scene where she's, you know, shooting at Tony in the office. When she shoots him in the leg, because she's just kind of firing wildly at him, yeah, you know, yeah. Kind of almost like cartoonishly around him, you know, right? Like a bullet outline or something. <laughs> but when she shoots him in the leg, she d cuts back to her and she gives this little like, oh, like almost like she because she's drugged out of her mind and freaked yeah. out that her husband's been you know murdered. But right. it's almost like that that moment of surprise, like oh, I didn't actually expect to shoot you. <laughs> like oh, that's that's right. interesting. Wow, I, I actually I, was, I always love that true. little moment. Yeah, and it's it's definitely interesting though, as and we hinted at it last week when we were talking about the thirty-two version. Uh, the difference in the sister characters, though, between her character, how she's written, and how in the original she was written, because we I, I think we mentioned it that in this one, Gina uh, Montana is a bit softer than the one in the thirty-two, in, in many ways uh you know she's not quite as strong in her self as uh you know and she wasn't that much in the 32 but there is a just a difference in strength between the two you can see it for sure right i i don't know I, you know we don't get a lot of gina in the movie and mm -hmm. we see a lot from tony's but if you think about it you know she is against her mom's wishes certainly against her brother's wishes yeah. she is her own independent like you know night clubbing woman who will hook up with whoever she wants you know tony buys her a hair salon but it's gina's hair salon yeah like she has an ambition to like i guess cut hair which is weird considering that giant perm fro she's oh my got. god it's just terrible right but then and she also makes the decision to you know elope with uh with manny and she's the one who's, you know, still standing. I mean, I guess it makes sense because uh, Tony shot Manny at the in the doorway. But, yeah, she comes back with the gun. She's got tremendous agency. It's just like Michelle Pfeiffer's character who, you know, I was having a conversation about her. Like, oh, she's just arm candy. You know, she's just like the, the, the kept mob woman we've seen a hundred times. But the thing is, she decided to be in that position because it's established that she's like a rich chick from, you know, well-educated from Connecticut who, you know, once she and she storms out on Tony Montana, she's like, you know, fuck you. I'm leaving. I've had enough of this. Yeah, she's probably going to go back to Connecticut or be with some other gangster somewhere else. So these aren't 
yes, it's 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 they're very attractive women who are in the lives of these guys who the movie is actually about. But if you look at what they're doing and how they carry themselves throughout the movie, they don't get a lot of screen time because the movie's not about them. But they're there's deceptively powerful, I think, uh, in, in this movie. I agree with you. In fact, I think Michelle Pfeiffer gives the best performance in the film. I think there's a lot of great performances, but I think she does so much with the way she carries herself and the way she looks at people and the way she, there's a sadness, there's a weariness to her. And yet, you know, she's also kind of taking a while to get ready because she wants to matter and sort of not just be like when she first bitches about going to the same club again, like, you know, she's got some feistiness to her and some, you, you I imagine there were probably 10 pages of backstory that she created for her character. And I think that comes through in the way she comes through it. She also makes one of, I think, dare I say the greatest entrances in a film in the world coming down that rather opulent indoor elevator of Frank's <laughs> and uh, her back is to the camera. So we see that backless dress and, you know, for the girl who was, sort of suffered through the Grease 2 sequel uh, for her to sort of reemerge in this as this really sort of slim, almost too skinny, but pale and luminescent sort of uh, vertical woman was, was kind of, in, what's that? Vertical. vertical. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of incredible. <laughs> I, mean, she's, I think she steals every scene she's in. And I, if anything, over the years I watch and I, 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 I always think that she's in it more than she is. Because yeah. it was such a big performance. She's no, also but, one of the ones that Stone is generous to because she gets away. She does. She, she does yeah. get away. She's one but, of the few uh, people who does. <laughs> that scene with, with, the, with the glass uh, elevator just reminded me of Vertigo because of De Palma oh, and his love sure. for Hitchcock. Oh, yes, yes. I'm just watching it going, interesting <laughs> setting, Mr. De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, I and I wasn't trying to say that she was. I think uh, definitely I agree with Michelle Pfeiffer's character is, is definitely the stronger. I think the difference watching between these two, between Gina and and uh, the sister, you know, in, in the 32 version, maybe it's not so much strength in general, but how she is around Tony is a, a little better in the 32 version than it is in this one in this one and i think it's because what we we talked about too is them leaning more into the incestuous feeling idea far more in this one than in the 32 version and maybe that's yeah. it and that's what the difference in her character is because in, in in the original you feel that she's a little bit stronger towards tony than in this one you know she seems a little bit more uh, able to confront Tony a little, go to a little more toe to toe with Tony in the 32 version versus this one, though, neither one, uh, the character gets that much screen time. It just, it, it just seems a bit different. And maybe that's where I'm sensing it from in that she, in the 32 version, she really is just brother sister. Whereas in this one, it's uh, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit, a little bit more than that. <laughs> but I also think that, as they lean into that lurid sort of aspect of it. And, you know, we were cresting into all kinds of things like that after the, um, you know, the video revolution that brought porn into the home and, and pushing the boundaries and stuff like that. I think for Tony, it's also about control and power. Like I think well, he yeah. wants control over her and, and she's feisty like him. And somehow he sees this as somebody that he's got to sort of, dominate in a way that yeah i think he's attracted to her because she's a beautiful woman and everything else but i also think it's uh 
you know, by all rights, he should certainly be happy that if she was going to go with somebody, it, she she went with his best friend. Yeah. But instead, it's like he loses the control over her to this other man who he's close to, but can't deal with the fact that that person has a little bit more of an edge on him on anything. Well, at, that. at the point of the movie, though, when he discovers it, it's. Tony goes through a hell of a lot more shit in this film by the time he discovers that his sister's with Manny than he did in the original. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the original, he 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 kind of here too. He goes off, you know, and uh, uh, he gets away for a while because things are heated. But in this one, it's just it's worse. You know, yeah. he's in a far worse headspace and situation by the time he mm -hmm. discovers his sister is hooked you know connected up with manny right. uh he's gone through the ringer a lot more i think at this point he uh was it this this is where um at just after the failed bomb attempt because he wasn't going to do it with sosa because uh um he, they were going to blow up kids and he's like no man i don't do that you know, it, it just he he you know it, I he's been through the rigor that he finds out the IRS is after him. You get the buzz, you know, and, and so he's gone through all this, and then he discovers. Oh yeah, by the way, hey, sis is, you know, shacking up with your your best buddy. Well, um, it's I mean it's partially because at this point, the the, the trail ramp from all angles. Right. Um, yeah. You know, he's got, you know, Frank set him up. The crooked cops set him up. Mm -hmm. He got, you know, the, the thing with Manny, Manny tried to set up this deal that ended up being, uh, you know, a bust, a sting operation. He gets called down back down to South America to talk to Sosa about doing this political assassination. And it turns out like the people in the room, there's like a, the sugar company magnate, uh, the U.S. government official and all these other corrupt mm -hmm. people who are, betraying the trust that's been in you know ascribed to them and then manny most tellingly he disappears for a couple of days right. and that turns out right. he's off with gina getting married but because tony finds himself continuously continuously isolated his best friend is nowhere to be found it's running through his head like oh shit maybe manny's turned on me too so when he sees he goes to the this house and Gina walks out on the balcony in her bathrobe. She's like, oh, you son of a bitch. And, and he just yeah. like takes him out. It makes yeah. sense. Although I got a question, Manny and Gina's logic, even in the best of circumstances, because <laughs> one of the reasons, aside from the incest thing, one of the reasons I think Tony is very leery of Manny is because Manny is a womanizer. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, like the scene, the scene right before we see them, I think at the wedding with the ribbing. The, yeah, it's the wedding to Tony yeah. and, and the Michelle Pfeiffer's mm -hmm. character. Um, Manny, uh, I think it's after the nightclub assassination attempt. Mm -hmm. uh, Manny wakes up in bed and there's a blonde in bed. Yeah. With like, so I don't know if he's sleeping around on Gina or if she set him straight or whatever. And it's true love. That look that he gives her as he's looking up the balcony at her right before he gets shot seems to be one of true adoration. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a real tragedy to it. But if the Gina and Manny show up in the best of circumstances, say, hey, older brother, we just got married. I don't know that he wouldn't have shot them both. <laughs> no, see, and I, I don't know if he would have shot him. I think he would have like 
beat the crap out of them and just like disown them and not and, and cut them off. I think if it, it was under if if Scarface was not in the situation he was at when he discovered it, if he was just like at the peak of his whatever and he finds out, you know, he'd be like, yeah, get 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 the fuck out of my face. But you when know, did Tony Montana ever let anybody go? Like at, whenever someone left his life or is in a circle, they did so in a body bag. <laughs> That's I want I, the point. I want to see that alternate reality where they they sprung the news on him and and for some reason they're all happy. It would have been interesting to see if they had any kind of like hesitation or if Gina was able to say like we we we, were, we weren't sure if you you know we. Manny thought you might take it like this or something like that because there's no hesitation. They seem to think, oh, everything's sunshine and roses, even though I've been keeping this a secret because he's a killer. I think the only way they'd get away with it is if they kept it a secret until she was pregnant. I think mm. if she, I think if they kept it a secret and she got pregnant, I don't think Tony kills Manny and that he disowns them he doesn't talk to them anymore ever but if she is with child <laughs> i suspect no well because tony's got this uh, he's he's a fascinating character and the most consistent character in scarface history. what could have been he yeah. he's one of the most hey that we do that all the time here at the spoiler room we <laughs> well, always, no, but, i know but Mark, i just I think, think it's i think he would have killed him always i think he, uh, he would, i mean he was such a rageful paranoid fuck that i think he would have either done himself in or done them in or done i mean i just they were one other step on the way to his total destruction but i sure but i mark, would have ever been fair to them but but mark i i don't know if this is where you're going with it and i will let you finish this, your point because Sorry. it is your show after all oh um, that's fine <laughs> but no to the bomb situation like tony is constantly throughout this movie talking about kids and wanting kids and he's like right. disappointed with michelle pfeiffer because yeah. her, her womb is polluted, is polluted. polluted. right her womb um, is polluted. yeah i wonder okay imagine gina gets pregnant tony kills manny anyway and then becomes this kind of surrogate father oh, for the yeah. son <laughs> yeah no i could see that i could see that hey gina come here you know he needs he needs a little brother come on <laughs> oh no don't what resist me. Don't resist me. You know, it, it's Scarface is another fascinating piece of cinema in that our main character, our anti-hero, far anti-hero, stays consistent throughout. Usually with a character like this, there's at least a little hint of like remorse at some point or regret or whatever. You get a little scene to where you know, usually we followed them doing these horrible yeah. things throughout, and then you'll get the scene where they're like, "Oh man, I've, I've, I've just really done some bad things," and then, and then you know, big bad guys come, and then they switch back to bad guy. But you get that little minute of you don't get that with Tony like mm -hmm. ever. He is one of the most consistent assholes in cinema throughout. It's like, a total descent. You're right, and there's no off ramp for even five minutes where he has a regret about something or maybe a little bit of sadness. I mean, maybe a, a tinge as he watches Michelle Pfeiffer walk out the door, but not really. I mean, he's just, you're right. It's, it's kind of a brutal awfulness about him throughout. I also think when he dies, I'm not saying you're cheering for him. I, I mean, I think obviously his popularity with afterwards is probably like, yeah, I want to live like that and live like him or whatever. But, um, it, he had it coming. 
<laughs> he did. There's not and a dry eye. There's there's a lot of dry eyes in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a spectacular fall. Like one thing I noticed again watching it today was just that he falls into the pool. Yeah. Or the, the fountain, whatever. Right, right. And there's just this tremendous, not only just the splash of water, but you really see how much he'd been shot up by the, yes. the, the torrents of water that come up from his body before he hits the water. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I, I will say like, and they had a bit of this in the 32 version. I think they played it up a bit uh, more with uh, Paul Mooney's, you know, another terrific performance, but the guilt over, um, Manny's death in this one, he does he does feel bad about it. When he's yeah. sitting in the office, he does yeah. he does mutter to himself, Manolo, because he realizes yeah. that he wishes he had his best friend there to help take on the world. And then when Gina dies uh in his arms, he does say, you know, I'll I'll he's like kissing her on the forehead and he's like, I'll uh, I'll be right back. I'll I'll be with you soon. Yeah. There is that kind of recognition that that everything is kind of coming to an end, and there is a softness to him. But it's True. also just overridden by all that coke. I, I swear to God, <laughs> the, the prop department, they probably said, uh, sorry, Mr. De Palma, Mr. Stone, we're going to have a little trouble getting the, the prop coke uh, to set on time. They're like, no, don't worry, we have it covered. See, I, I want to hear like the interview with Pacino about that movie. Like to me, you know, when he was on the actor's studio and some of those kind of inside the actor's studio and some of those things, he touches on so many movies and stuff, but he could do two hours on just talking about what was your experience on Scarface? I mean, it was one of your bigger performances. You're this total awful character. It's ridiculously violent, but it's fun. And then over the years, it's become this uh, sort of classic as well as an influencer on hip hop culture and everything else. What do you think about that, Al? I, I mean, I just love because I think, you know, there's so many prestigious films that he's done that still have stood the test of time and add to his vaulted uh, reputation. And this one does, too. But for, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of films other than maybe where Al Pacino changes his name to Mochaccino, uh, where he has as much fun on camera or clearly is having such a ball. <laughs> I can't believe he still did that for Adam Sandler. What did Adam Sandler do to get Pacino to do that? Anyway. He probably has pictures. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have pictures. Can, can, we, can we talk about just for a minute? I, I totally forgot watching this. That F. Murray Abraham was in this He's movie. Over. The 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 action figure missing from your box set. Yes. And watch Omar be thrown out of a helicopter with <laughs> neck breaking action. He's dead, but he's still a swinger. <laughs> well, it's it's great because that mirrors the um, the scene from The Godfather with mm -hmm. uh, Abe Vigoda. Um, when he gets taken uh, away by the, uh, you know, to, to go for a little drive. All I got to say, watching that scene again today, um, that is the, the quickest turnaround from like, hey, why don't you go with, uh, with these guys? We'll catch up with you in a minute to like literally a minute later, Montana's looking through those binoculars and Emery <laughs> Abraham has been dragged through the dirt like his pants are all green. He's been beat to a bloody pulp and he's got a noose around his neck and he's in a helicopter that's just taken off. Like, yeah. wow, they work fast. And conscious before he's thrown out. <laughs> so I'm not sure he even felt the, the snap, but I know it's a, they, they must have cut something out of that because it goes a little fast. Well, look at, yeah. look at the, uh, 
I mean, it does go a little fast uh, as far as time goes. Maybe he and uh, maybe Sosa and, and Tony talk a little bit more because it is rather quick when you get that. But at the same time, you look at Sosa's guys, they're quick in general. That raid on Tony Manta- Montana's complex, those guys worked quick. I mean, they dispatch his guards, most of them, like, like that. It's like they don't hesitate at all. They took the... Um... The Gary Oldman school of sending everyone. <laughs> I mean, everyone. What was what was Sosa's? Uh, oh my God! Look at this first class travel to Miami, Bill. Oh my God! This is seventy thousand dollars. Oh, they went into the mini bar. This is bad, <laughs> bad. I really could have done it with that one guy. The one nah, guy he... who wears the sunglasses at night. So I can. <laughs> so I can. Kill Tony with one shot in the back of the head. Yeah, well, yeah. I that I want to know. That's the thing. I want to know more about Sosa. Like when he gets off the phone with Tony Montana, because I really felt for him. Because like yeah. the, he, the guy made a speech at the UN he wasn't supposed to make. Tony, you <laughs> fucked me, Tony. <laughs> Even my no, elegant no voice now. I could have been in soap operas, but no, you <laughs> fucked up, Tony. I told you not to fuck me. <laughs> By fuck the way, you, uh, Paul Shanier is one of those actors who never quite had the career that he probably should have. But he was one of the first actors to play Orson Welles. He played him in a TV movie done in the 70s about um, the uh, the radio show about the Martian landing. He played Orson Welles in that. Really? If you listen to his voice, he has a little bit of that in there. But... Um, Can- but never quite had the career he probably could have, especially with that voice. I mean, he was handsome and his voice was silky and everything else. But same with Greg Henry. Greg Henry, who plays the congressman that uh, made a big splash on Rich Man, Poor Man, book two. And then thankfully, Brian De Palma put him in a bunch of movies. He was the the killer in Body Double, but he also didn't quite have the career that he should have either. Though De Palma brings it back, which, by the way, a little trivia for both of you. In the scene where Tony Montana is being interviewed as he's gotten off the boat, who are the two voices that we don't see interrogating him? They're two standbys. Well, the one Palma of them films. What one of them I think is uh 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 he plays the cop all the time. Uh Dennis Franz? Franz. Yes, yes, Ted from out of town. Yeah, he's one really. of the guys interviewing him, and the other yeah. one is Charles Durning, of course, who was the cop in Sisters. I thought I recognized Charles Durning too. Yeah. I did. I did recognize the other voice, though. I'm listening to him, and I'm waiting for him to be on screen, and he's not. He's like, "Oh, come on, he's here! It's the I know. He's here. Where is he?" I wanted him to mention Ted from out of town, but he yeah. didn't. No, he didn't mention Ted. Who's going to vouch for you, Tony? Ted from out of town. Ted you better tell town. Ted from out of town to get downtown and in town and. <laughs> <laughs> I oh. I watched another movie I watched for the first time last year was uh was Serpico and I was uh, it was fun to see yes F Murphy Abraham shows up in that too um yeah. so yeah they had quite the partnership for a couple of years there and he's very good in the the limited role that he has in in Scarface but he's very good in it too you know it's funny a lot of the people and this is one of those things with De Palma too is I I don't know if he's great at casting or if it's just these are the actors that the casting directors are saying are the up-and-comers, the ones who are really impressive. But De Palma has had a a great ability over the years to bring these sort of unknowns or or barely known actors 
into the the mm-hmm. thing. I mean, I think this is Mary Elizabeth Montantonio's first big role, and um, uh, he, you know, some of the other people he's given those kind of things. I mean, you think of the young cast in Carrie and some of the other films. I mean, he was the first guy who kind of put Andy Garcia in something. I think uh, that was notable, or at least you know, got some attention. So he's had some. He's had some good uh, thoughts on casting and bringing some, you know, new people sort of to the forefront. And even, you know, F. Murray Abraham. I mean, he was basically the fruit of the loom guy, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the four guys doing that for a number of years and a theater actor. But it, this was one of the roles that, you know, he was put in and got some real notoriety for. Yeah, this movie Thank is you, full Brian. of great. Yeah, <laughs> this movie is full of great faces and, and great uh, performances. And that's the thing is like, you know, when people criticize the performances and the kind of the, you know, ethnic play and all that, I'm like, yeah, maybe, but, but watch these characters. I mean, even if I, I don't get the feeling that anybody set out to make a parody of a culture right. or Not a cartoon or a racist movie, these, you know, if you take the accent out of it, which I don't know why you would, cause it's, it's, it, if nothing else is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They, they really dig into these roles and try and make them into, into real characters. And, you know, that, that scene that you mentioned, Jeff, earlier, the, the tense scene, the three in the morning scene with Frank Lopez and the corrupt cop, it is very tense. It's beautifully acted. And I think it also, in a weird way, the rule of three, the person in that room before Tony and his, you know, second, you know, his gunman come in is the like the barman, the, you mm-hmm. know, who. Uh, ends up becoming one of you know montana's lieutenants right and, you know you shoot frank lopez you shoot the you know, the the corrupt cop and you expect the other guy to get it but he kind of like just says you know lets him off and it's almost like a like a comedic end to that that scene it's it's just wonderful yeah he says you need a job yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> good i'll uh, come by tomorrow hey, 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 man, he says congratulations you got a job <laughs> and his buddy comes up and goes hey man congrats you got a job and the guy's just like yeah. ernie yeah that's right it was ernie yeah that was ernie. Really just like but i mean yeah. he's staying there watching his boss mm-hmm. who he's been kind of you know it's like shit. So, you know but but it goes back to to mark what you were saying about consistency you know, even though Tony is a is a complete psycho, he still is sort of a code hero, or he has at least a code of weird mm-hmm. ethics. Because when he's talking to Sosa, and Sosa is talking about how uh, F. Murphy Abraham's character, he was a rat or suspected right. Scooby, rat, yeah. whatever. Right. Yep. Um, Montana says, "Look, I never fucked anybody who didn't have it coming." Yeah, and that that plays out later. It's like, yeah, Ernie didn't do anything. He was just working for a right, guy who right. screwed Tony over. But it's not like he was in on the plan. He probably didn't even know about it. I also like one of the things as as I've watched this movie over the years is, and this is where it's very shrewd and kind of clever of both De Palma and Stone to put these things in there. Is yeah, you've got these big scenes and these big violent moments, and that's why I think you know the characters are big too because they're living in this largest life. But you know, you get the scenes where Tony's kind of Try, the the bank manager is trying to screw him over. Oh yeah, you know little things like that where it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much you're still kind of being shat on, you know, mm-hmm. for various reasons and whatever else. And the banker is no more uh, admirable than Tony, but you know he's still sneering at him and saying like, "Well, no, we can't do this." And um, well, and Tony- I, I think it's it's interesting that those scenes stay in here and i think they're important scenes because they're the little bits where again like you said when they introduce all those people in 
Sosa's room. It's like shit. These are like all American businessmen. And, uh, but it, but it also speaks to like kind of like well, what do you expect? I mean, mm -hmm. you can't just honestly bring right. in weekly duffel bag stuff with you know hundred dollar right, bills right. like millions of dollars and ex expect to just process that through the IRS. There's got to be right. an underground network, and a lot yep. of palms need to get greased. So it's like well. You don't have to deal with this. You could just go back to working as the the chef in that greasy roadside spoon, right. or you can commit to the bit, as they say. <laughs> well, and and Tony and Tony also has this thing about not wanting to. It's really weird. We're looking at organized crime, but this is a different family of organized crime because they drop a couple of times. Hey, you could get bankers with so and so, and he's like because they're connected and when you think connected you're like oh connected to another like you know cuban mob or, or, or drug runners or no when they say connected we're looking at kind of a mr scarface situation to where they're connected that means they're with actual what's considered mobsters the the godfather type italian gangsters which tony doesn't want to deal with Mm -hmm. you know so there's there's this also that hierarchy but tony mm -hmm. makes that decision as well as to where he doesn't want to get mm -hmm. in with the mobsters though he's hit such a high level to where everybody and their mother is going okay look you're a high roller now you can't just fuck everyone and just say i'm doing this myself because <laughs> it's gonna bite you and yeah you have to do these things even if you don't like them and that's the problem that Tony has. And that ends up being his downfall is that he can't get past his ego of. I got to make some compensation. I got to make some compromises. He doesn't want to compromise his character to a fault. Right. Well, it's he he has an insatiable, like literally an insatiable appetite. I mean, yeah. Frank Lopez gives him some great advice early on. He says any day above ground is a good day, Tony. So yeah. it's like, you know, he. He has like Montana Management Company during that great like Pepsi Cola commercial montage. Yeah. Uh, right after he makes that deal with Sosa. Uh -huh. And there's like the zoom in on his face, like, hey, talking on the phone and everything. And he, the opening Gina's salon. And like he really does have it all. And he could have just maintained. Uh, you, you get the feeling from look Lopez looking at Sosa, you know, looking at F. Murray Abraham's character that there is more of a a laid back kind of like we've got guys to be the animals to be the killers we're in management upper management now we can we can chill out a little bit more because we got folks to handle that but tony never got out of that killer mindset he's still scraping his way to a top that will never he'll never reach because it doesn't exist there's nothing right. high enough for him well yeah and even when he you know he hits that high point he can't get out of his mentality of being in the trenches being the trench guy you know being yeah. the the worker bee he just he's you know and in the end it's a statement and i've seen comments about this as well and it, and it's pretty obvious and it's why i think uh oliver stone takes the immigrant angle why they 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 address a real historical event they work that into this with the with you know uh 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 um castro sending people over and it is true he sent a lot of his political criminals over he's like get them out he of empty the country. jails he emptied mm -hmm. the jails you know the sanitariums you know he, and so he did that so they're addressing that 
and they're trying to make a statement about the American dream because you're looking at this coming out in 83 cold war and that, and, and, you know, at, at there's started to be that deconstruction of the fifties American dream concept of, Hey, come to America, get yourself a business. You work hard. You're going to work up the ladder and you're going to make it here. We have a guy who's come from nothing, basically the worst, you know, situations, and yeah, in the it's the crime. But let's let's look at this. That is crime is just a business. Let's take the illegal part out of it and look at how he climbs up. He climbs the corporate ladder. He gets his own business. He gets established. He gets rich. He he basically it's it's the criminal version. I mean, it's the negative, you know, the inverse version, but of the American dream. This guy has climbed and made something of himself. And yet he wants more and it ends up destroying him. So what are they saying about the, the American dream of how, you know, is it something that is, you know, either unattainable or are they saying it's something that'll eventually overtake you and, and destroy you? I, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's saying either, honestly. I mean, okay, this movie might be saying that, but if you look at what the American dream is, it's the opportunity to come to a place where you can, you know, if you have the ambition, the knowledge, the commitment, and yes, a good deal of luck, you can be and do anything you want to do. Now, sure. it's not easy for anybody to do that in any country under any circumstances, but it's certainly better here in a, in a country of, you know, I'll say so-called free markets and opportunity <laughs> than, than, no, I mean, than under communism. True, true. Um, I mean, yeah. there are plenty of people who have, that's why people are still coming here. Right. Is because they believe that they, they they want to escape the circumstances that they were in and, and make something of themselves. The problem is that there are people who are greedy and there are underground criminal networks who need bodies to throw at you know different problems. But that's that that is separate from the American dream. They get lumped in a bit because there is corruption, because there is capitalism. Capitalism doesn't necessarily mean corruption. It is just the trading of one, you know, of goods for services and, and finances. Um, so yeah, I this is a great parallel movie to uh, an Oliver Stone film, Wall Street, that came out, you know, yeah. four years later. Uh, that you can almost imagine these, like you can imagine like Bud Fox turning on his TV and seeing this story about some cube gangster who got shot home along with like 30 other people and him being like huh, weird and then, and then going, to, going to meet gordon gecko um yeah which which we did talk about wall street folks check out the spoiler room where you get that episode where we were doing our uh stock uh up episode month anyway sorry uh, shameless shill my shill is showing my apologies but <laughs> yeah um this is an, a this is a fascinating film because there's there's no real good guys. There's there's shades of bad guys. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's, it's 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 that kind of it's it's a noir type story in many respects. In that you've got really the underground you're focusing on, and there's no real everybody's in their situation, and what they end up getting happen to them is not something that they didn't at least partially deserve except for maybe manny manny you know i will say maybe well maybe, manny killed but, a lot of people but manny I, killed a lot of people yeah exactly yeah. so i mean you know 
it's one of those things where you look at all of this and probably I think we said it before, the best person, the person who makes out the best out of this entire situation is is uh Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Elvira. <laughs> she she she's probably the one that makes it out the best well and in some in some respects that's the morality of this i think mm -hmm. is um whether it's the sopranos or the godfather movies or um you know even things like um uh road to perdition you know there's the famous mm -hmm. line where paul newman meets with paul uh, with uh, tom hanks later in the movie and he says you know basically not one of us is going to see heaven because we're all killers we're all terrible We've all chosen this life and we know it. And we know when we decided to choose this life, what it, what it meant. And that's kind of true of all these. I mean, you know, you look at the stories about them and they're they're Every day you could get killed mm -hmm. and maybe you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe you're sitting next to the guy who's got it coming or whatever. But um, there's very few people who are sort of in that world that haven't chosen to be there and probably, aren't watching their, you know, over their shoulder constantly because it's just that kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and that's, that's what's, <laughs> that's why it's always, this is always interesting on how people, uh, you know, embrace this film now and talk about this film and you look at it going, not really a redeemable character in this entire movie it's like it's like they're all all various levels of not good <laughs> i mean except right. maybe but it's you know but it's also a great and, and this is why the the adoption of this by you know you know certain like pop cultures and subcultures as being this great kind of memeable film film this is a a very sad movie but the glamour aspects of it often get played up kind of like new Jack city would about mm. seven years later. Um, but yeah, you watch, this as a great cautionary tale because right. at any point you can pull over and choose something different. Mm -hmm. When Tony Montana opens up Montana management company, he could have taken his hundred million dollars or how much he had in the bank and said, you know what, I'm going to hand this over to Manny or Ernie or whoever. I'm going to go retire to a, a private Island that I bought. But again, it's never enough. Well, he's going to call up. Uh, yeah, I heard about this guy named Gecko who could invest some of my money. You know, it becomes about the game, doesn't it? It becomes about this mm -hmm. weird yeah. sense of in, 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 uh, empowerment or something. I mean, even even in something where it's it's more bloodless, like in The Wolf of Wall Street, it's the same thing. How, how as, as Bud Fox asks Gordon Gecko. How much better? Uh, how much? What, what do you need? I mean, why did you have to break this company? Because it's breakable. Or the famous line from Chinatown, where Jake Giddes asks uh, Noah Cross, uh, "How much better can you eat? How much better can you live?" And oh no, it's not about that. It's about the future, right. which is about power. And that's politics. It's about assassination. It's about conspiracy. It's about everything that kind of has the touch, whether it's Illuminati, if we believe in that, or or, or drugs or gangster culture. It's, it really comes down to power and you're, and you're right, and it's never enough because it's not about the money. It's not about the, 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 the you know, the big, uh, whatever that hot tub, tub in the middle of his <laughs> living room is or bedroom with it. <laughs> So weird. With like, the TV, yeah. You just think about like that. I bet you the water in that carpet is discoloring, and it's probably mildewy. But <laughs> you know, maybe he changes that every other week. I don't know. Um, but it's just, it's, it's. They can't even see that after a while. 
Mm -hmm. um, Jordan Belfort in the Wolf of Wall Street couldn't see how much money he had. And the first 10 minutes of that is him telling you all about like, that's my home and I have this and I have that. And you're going like, fuck me. How the... And it's like, but that's not what this movie's about. It's all about like, hey, well, I couldn't get past all that because I fucked it all up. I got this big ass yacht and I drove it through a storm because I had to cover my ass in Switzerland. You know, it just it's it's all just this weird sense of building more and more and the corruption that comes with winning at all costs or grabbing it at power at all costs. Well, it, it's it's. It's taking the attitude, nobody's going to tell me what to do, is, is Tony Montana, what control? You know, any agreement he enters in is something that he's proposed. It's not someone telling him what he's going to do. I mean, yeah. it, it, at the very beginning, but he doesn't like it. I mean, it's, it's the immediately why he does the about face on, on um, uh, his boss, uh, um, Frank. Frank, uh, yeah. Frank, it's the immediately, you know, he's soft. Literally, he meets them. They do one. They, he meets them once. He literally has the opportunity. He he managed to get the Colombian, the not only the the cocaine, but bring the money back to Frank. And Frank's like, "Oh shit, this is someone we can work with." And like one meeting, and this you know Frank's like a mid level guy, but still he's got a little bit of clout. And and Tony's like, "This guy's not telling me what to do." And we're like. What the hell, dude? You just <laughs> got into his good graces and you're already saying he's not going to tell you. What and I think that's why Tony. You know, you know, Tony reminds me a little bit of this. Mm -hmm. And there's that psycho kind of craziness in him. Uh, it's Charles Manson. Manson had that chip on his shoulder from early on. And it was all about him doing whatever he could to prove that he was the man. Yeah. He was the, uh, he was the artist. He was the sex machine. He was the guru. He was the guy who was going to save America when they got into the race war, all that kind of bullshit. And it's just this little man who'd been shit on all his life, grew up, um, you know, already, you know, 10 strikes against him uh, and somehow just couldn't see the reality of that. So you're right. I mean, he bit every hand that fed him. And, uh, you know, and it's funny, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a thriftiness and a need to get it fast too. Like I, I often think about Manson, you know, like he got so mad about Terry Melcher uh, not giving him the contract for the album. And then he went and did the Helter Skelter murders and stuff like that. And it's like, but you know who Terry Melcher is. You've met a bunch of people of the industry. You can wait another six months, give another, but no, no. See, haste is making waste for these people. And Tony is like, he just met Frank, but it's like, I could be better than Frank. I'm perfect. <laughs> He has to hide behind a Mercedes dealership. I mean, seriously, you know, that's probably yeah. the mentality that's going on in his head. And like, I've been just waiting to dominate these people. And that's how I, you know, he was probably survived all the stuff he did in prison, everything else. But that's a little man who's been shit on early. And every second is him having to show that he's better. Right. Well, I mean, well, even, he, even in his first job that Manny, like, Hey, look, we've got, you know, where he meets uh, Abraham's character and that. And they're like, Okay, we just need you to go do this. And he's like, that's beneath us. That's like 300 bucks. What the fuck? Go fuck. You know, these guys are giving him an opportunity to get away from being a cook. And he's yeah. already, he's already like, no, give me something better. Otherwise, you know, go fuck yourself. Tony, you know? it's $300 and you get a nice shower out of it. Come yeah. on. <laughs> well, I mean, but at that point, given his, what we can imagine of his history, it probably is you know, beneath him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just the people that he's dealing with don't know that because yeah. he's just some guy off the boat, literally. Right. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it is, yeah, again, it's just, it's very sad. Um, it, he's yeah, I, I, go ahead. Why well, is it, it is, I think a great, you know, cautionary tale. I think it was also, if there's any kind of commentary about like capitalism or the American dream, I think it might be the fact that Michelle Pfeiffer's character is the one who gets away because she can frankly afford to, she can run back to daddy. Yeah, that's, and right. that's right. And do whatever, go back, go that's to art right. school or something. There's, there's privilege and then there's privilege. Well, isn't she right. the one that also <laughs> drops that they aren't winners, they're losers as yeah. well? Yeah. She's yeah. the one that tells them she that gets in the, the cafe. Yeah. yeah. She gets that kind of last word in front of everybody. She's like, we're not winners, Tony. We're a bunch of fucking losers. <laughs> yeah. But hey, she ultimately won the game of life, literally, because she, she survived. <laughs> she survived and no one went mm -hmm. after her. And, and yeah, at the end of the day, uh, there you go. So I don't know exactly what that is trying to say, but I'll just say Scarface, uh, awesome movie. Uh, just like the 30s. The 30s one is an awesome movie. These are both really great movies. Um, you know, and, and there's a reason why people continue like us are talking about Scarface today, why it was an influential thing in the subcultures and into hip hop and that because of the attitude Tony had of not taking shit from anyone. I mean, that is, it, you know, there is a powerful statement there to be had about him uh, and him not compromising his character at any point in this movie you know it, it's very rare you see that in the film and so there's a lot of cool things going on in this movie and a great uh, Giorgio Moroder score too by the way yes well it, that's what I wanted to talk I know we're going a little late but I wanted to talk about real quick the music we talk about Tarantino and such about needle drops De Palma's needle drops in here are spot on with the situation that's what's going on from where she, you know from she's on fire uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, every almost every single one of the songs is themed in what you're seeing on screen. The the vocal songs, mm -hmm. not only the the instrumental, but the vocal mm -hmm. songs actually fit what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's not just thrown in there for them to. It's a cheesy '80s music. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, it's appropriate. It's fitting for what's going on in that film. But I think it's instrumentation that is sort of cheesy. But I think the actual tension that those chords and Marauder builds, I mean, oh, it's yeah. very tense. It's a very, very tense score. And people forget, well, maybe they don't forget. You guys wouldn't forget. But uh, Marauder won an Oscar for the soundtrack to Midnight Express, yep. which mm -hmm. was kind of a similar thing using the electronica, which was big uh, and sort of becoming the new thing, uh, the synthesizers and, and all that. Um, but he used it for a very sort of tense purpose. It's it's funny how many movies of that period had that kind of music too. I mean, the first Terminator had a similar kind of track oh, and Brad, uh, Brad Fidel. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mean, yeah. the hidden and all different kinds of movies that anything that was a thriller was using a, a synthesizer as the main instrument in the eighties for sure. And that's why I've I've enjoyed my vinyl. TerrorVision uh, is a great company. I know Waxworks does some, but TerrorVision has come out and gotten licensing for some wonderful B-movie 80s soundtracks. You know, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, De Demon, you know, Neon Demons I've got, uh, Demon Wind, uh, you know, stuff like that. Things of all things. <laughs> you know, I, how, I mean, um, um, Ennio Morricone used uh, the synthesizer and when he scored the thing, um, the, the score for Creepshow is mm -hmm. 
synthesizer, you know. But it was interesting because um, that that score blended children's voices with yes. sort of tauntiness <laughs> to, to to nod to the comic thing of it with a na 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 dun 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 that's all electronic synthesizer. I mean, it was just that period. And even stuff like the, <laughs> the gate net. Well, well, Roy, I was going with that is you have the big Hollywood guys doing the stuff, but at the that was one part where everybody was on the same level because the same techniques they were using for these bigger movies like Scarface and that, these guys for B movies were doing it. And this is synth stuff. And this is stuff that was new technology. So these guys are, That's right. are, are it was- making it. You, you, you reading the liner notes from a lot of my Terrorvision records where they're talking about these guys who did these synth scores and they're talking about how they recorded the whole damn thing in their living room with three <laughs> different synthesizers. Oh, yeah. Some of them talked about, yeah, this sound wasn't made. We had to go out and make this sound and add it to this, t- you know, and, and, they're and the doing- person who changed everything was Marauder because he yeah. started in the late seventies. He did all the Donna summer things that I feel love and he did fame and other things. But then the other one who cemented it was Van Gallus, of course, with Chariots of Fire, which to this day, I still think it's kind of an amazing thing that here's this 1920s, 30, early thirties period piece. And the director, um, I think his name was Hugh. Was it? No, Hugh Hudson was the pro- Hugh Hudson might've been the producer of that. I think it was the producer, but um, the director of it, who I'm missing blanking on his name right now. Um, he chose to go with a contemporary track. You know, you could have thought, oh, he'll do some big full symphony like John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith were doing for everything. And he got Van Gels to do the ding, 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 ding. You know, it was just that one man and his synthesizer <laughs> in his, probably in his living room. He, Hugh Hudson <laughs> was the uh, director. So uh, oh, yeah, David yeah. Putnam was the producer. David, That's yeah. right. Hugh Hudson was the director. So, but yeah, so there you have it, folks. Uh, Scarface. It is a classic. I think we'll all agree that we'd all recommend you seeing it. Um, it it's, it's, if you watch this, you'll see also influences from this as well in the later films. <laughs> you know, you can see Tarantino influence. This, you know, oh, yeah. the, 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 sure. you, you can see a lot of Tarantino films in Scarface. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, not saying it in a bad way. See, that's the thing is, uh, I think people sometimes get misconstrued when you're either comparing it to another film or whatnot. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just showing you, I mean, De Palma, we've talked about many of his films here in the spoiler room and how much he borrowed from Alfred, you know, and it, it, oh, yeah. it you know, there's that debate. Is he ripping him off or is he just influenced? He thought it was so good that he wanted to do it the same thing. It's like, is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, the fact that, you know, they say was that a uh, uh, mimicry uh, is the, you know, the, the highest form of imitation is in the yeah. imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So yes. Praise so, goes. So there you go. So, or they say, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, right? Oh, there you go. <laughs> exactly. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. Now, before we get the license to shill, I have a little housekeeping to do, folks. Uh, well, I think we'd all recommend Scarface. Yes, gentlemen, we'd all. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Final thought. We have a little housekeeping. I forgot to do this last week during our PC, rated PC for pre-code, is choosing next month's <clears throat> pre-code right. movie. So we do have... Uh, the wheel of random here 
for us today. Oh, no. And we are going to spin the reel of random to see what next month's pre-code special movie is going to be. Round and around we go where it stops. Alibi. 1929 is the film that it's going to be our next uh, 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 yeah, it's going to be our next pre-code movie next week and uh, next month. You can't get the three of us to vote on it like we're the Pulitzers for uh, no, no, for this theater. Is, no, God, no, <laughs> yeah, three, three critics who vote on the Pulitzer for theater for drama. really, yep. Whew. No, this is my damn show, and I'm going to decide how okay, I want to do it. Okay, Mark. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. This is my show. I'm not do. telling you what to do. I'm just trying to influence you. I, I know. You're oh. trying to influence me. I, I'm going to take that mang. I'm not going to take that mang. <laughs> I, I mean, I was going to just say, not to guilt you, but as the the movie, uh, the horror aficionado, I can't believe you would still not be talking about the horror movies that made it onto the screen pre-code like king kong and we've got king jekyll and hyde we've Come got on. king kong and m on there we've got uh, a couple others How about well. freaks uh freaks is not on there i mark i'm no. also waiting for your um uh, are we gonna do a movie score special too I we... <laughs> uh, at some point possibly i know we had talked about, about doing it. something yes. there yeah yes it's, it's, it's yeah. I, between the two of you you both have a wonderful podcast I'm waiting to be the guest. Just call me when you're ready. <laughs> Listen out, sir. Listen out. You're a guest right now, but you're a guest right now. No, just kidding. Uh, I'm quickly becoming the Charles Nelson Riley of both of your shows, <laughs> taking over the show and turning it into something wrong. Uh, yes. So uh, next week. Aren't I going to tell oh, movie scars? And so next week, yes, Alibi 1929. I will have a themed month around Alibi. Guess what? Films with the name Alibi in it. That's going to be a fun one. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've Tom's got a... Alex, my Alibi? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's, there's, yeah, there's that wow. in there. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I put that on the list. Yeah, uh, yeah it might be on there. Uh, I'm not sure. Yet uh, I got to pull up my list for that. But yes, I uh, let, let me take a look quick. Well, you brought it up. Way to go. Okay. So next month is going to be, no, we don't have my alibi on there. So it's going to be okay. my alibi month is what it is. It's there my alibi month. Without gonna, my alibi. And, and it, I don't know which weeks we will do it yet, but we will be doing the alibi from 1929. We will be doing dark alibi, 1946, the third alibi, 1961, and lies and alibis from 2006. Oh, yeah. All right. And why? Because I love finding movies like this that nobody talks about. Because <laughs> does it get me more listeners? Probably not. But I'm interested. I want to see what these other movies are about. There's so much to watch out there. You never know what you might find. So, you know, I, I, I'm excited. That's my alibi. I could have done a Tom Selleck alibi movie that, but they, people know those movies. They might not know these films. So, you know, uh, that's where I'm at. So uh, that's tentatively what the list is, as long as they're still all available for streaming or some sort. So prepare yourself for my alibi month next month in February. That's the, the Valentine's day month too. So it's good to have an alibi during that. month. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I thought you might come full circle and make it all about showers since we yeah, started we, the could, uh, could episode be. about Ian in we the shower. We talked about Ian in the shower. We talked about, you know, chainsaws in the shower. So there you go. Uh, and now this is where I give my wonderful crew the license to shill. So please, Mr. Jeff York, the floor is yours. Well, as you can see, I have a, a blog uh, where I do my movie reviews called theestablishingshot.org. Um, I write two features a month and do characters for the uh, Pipeline Artist magazine online as well, uh, pipelineartist.com. Uh, doing some TikTok videos, guesting on shows like your wonderful programs, and uh, currently illustrating my uh, seventh book uh, with Ooh. characters um, for a book about stories from the theater and i can't tell you i don't think anything more about it yet but that's my current uh sort of weekend project oh and i'm also um i don't know when this will go out but i'm participating in the international society of caricature artists 31 caricatures in 31 days of january having to do one every day which is um it's my task from 10 to 12 and now will be my task from 11 to 1. I do it I give myself 2 hours and I do it each night at 10. Nice. I was going to I was going to hope ask if you were going to bring that up Jeff. Uh, oh, well, thank really you. Really cool. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks so much. That is very cool. Absolutely. And uh Mr. Ian Simmons, license to shill is yours. Uh, I'm Ian Simmons. I run Kicking the Seat, which you can find at kickseat.com. I'm also right here on YouTube. Uh, if you look up YouTube and kicking the seat, you'll find me there. Do uh, weekly podcasts and live streams and all that good stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm here on Mondays talking about movies with Mark, which, you know, I'm glad that's not the name of the show. Um, yeah, spoiler <laughs> room is much better. Yeah. <laughs> He's here slumming it with me, just like Mr. York is slumming it with me as well. So I consider uh, it a promotion. <laughs> But as far as what's coming up on specialmarkproductions.com, uh, I dropped six reviews last week. I've got another four this week, plus a written one coming, at least one. Uh, I also have an interview coming out. Again, we talked with him last month about his other film, Pig Killer. This month, we will be talking about his film, uh, Scalper. Uh, we're talking to filmmaker Chad Farron. And we're going to have also uh, Kate Patel, who plays a character in Scalper as well, a detective. And she was uh, the lead actress in Pig Killer. They both had Jake uh, Busey in them. Uh, highly recommend both of them if you're interested. Uh, Pig Killer was actually about a real serial killer in Canada. Go figure. Mm. It, you don't get one, many of those. Uh, and this one is, like I said, a, a sequel to his uh, film Nightcaller. So. So we got that oh. interview coming up and I'm, I'm lining up some other interviews. I've got a kind of wish list this year of interviewers, the, it, people I want to interview. Uh, so I, I actually have some goals this year. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> obviously though, it's not a goal to keep the podcast shorter. So that I apologize. For. <laughs> but in any case, thank you so much for our live streamers uh, who've tuned in tonight to view. We appreciate you. I appreciate all my listeners. Please spread the word and keep things going. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up this year and uh, yeah, hope you stick around and tune in. So until then, everyone stay safe, stay warm, and we'll say a good night, everyone. Good night, mine. Hey, everyone. Looking for more Spoiler Room goodness? Then head on over to patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you can get access to even more 
wonderful podcast content. Hear the conversation that happens before the live broadcast. You can also get access to an exclusive VIP episode that you vote on that's especially for you, or get early access to all our videos on YouTube, plus more. So check it out there, folks. And the more you do there, the more we can do here. And remember, with the spoiler room, the conversation is fresh, uh, but we do spoil the movies. Thank you.